Hi, I'm Ali. And I'm Penny, and you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing, and creativity amongst life's many other demands. Today, I'm joined by Angela Hoy. She's an award-winning food and lifestyle writer based in London. Her work has appeared in the BBC, Galdem, Vice, Lonely Planet, The Independent, amongst many others. She was the food and drinks writer at Time Out London since 2017, and her debut book, Takeaway, Stories from a Childhood Behind the Counter, is a memoir about growing up in a Chinese takeaway in rural Wales. Thank you so much for being with us, Angela. Hi, nice to be here in a very hot, I know we've, we said this earlier, like we look naked, but I know I we both you, practically look naked. Not, it's just hot. <laughs> Thank um, goodness no, for podcasting yeah. and we don't, no one else has to see us. Um, oh, it's just such a pleasure to have you here. I enjoyed Takeaway so much and I was so thrilled when I could get you on the podcast to talk about it. Um, really at its heart, Takeaway is a story about a double life um, of an immigrant child. And um, in your own words, you say at one point, two Western for the motherland, which in your case is Hong Kong, and two Eastern for your homeland, which is Wales. So I just wanted to start there, really. Is that what really drove you to um, start putting your childhood down on paper? Yeah, I mean, um, I guess like all my life I've kind of struggled, like, who am I? Who am I this person? Like, especially growing up in Wales, you know, I have a very Welsh accent, a very Valleys accent, even though I've like got yellow skin, I look very Chinese. It's like, who who am I? Like, I'm not really either here or there. And every time I go back to Hong Kong to see relatives and friends and family, they all can tell like I'm not very from Hong Kong at all. Like I can't really, I can read Chinese, but my Cantonese is probably at like a level of an eight-year-old. It's not very good, but like at least I can read some. So it's just, yeah, it's just this way of trying to figure out who I am. And, you know, growing up, I really resented being Chinese, you know, for all, for like, it's a really horrible thing to think, to think that, you know, I wanted to be a white person, you know, growing up in a, a very rural place in Wales, where the majority of people are all white, like, that's not a bad thing in itself, like, that's made me who I am. And I'm very grateful for growing up in a place like Wales, like, I, I love where I would come from now. Um, but at the time, as a kid, you kind of, really resent that you really wish that I wanted to be somewhere where all the action is like London I wanted to be you know I wanted to have friends that looked like me um there was only like in my school for example like there was only one of a a person who was like mixed race like there's only like a, a handful of us and um like it kind of made me like realize a lot more, you know, I was bullied a lot for in school for being Chinese and having a Chinese takeaway and it really made me stand out. And I think as a child, you all you really wanted to do was kind of blend in. You wanted to be popular. You wanted to just kind of fit in where it's like your very existence just is the thing that makes you stick out. So you kind of, you know, really resent who you are as a person but um, I, I kind of wanted to write about growing up and the change in that as someone who like really resented who I was to now as someone who is just learning to be comfortable with who I am in a way. It's like, this is who I am. This is like, I'm not afraid to be who I am. Like I'm very Chinese and I'm also very Welsh. Um, and I wanted to kind of celebrate that. And as well, um, like it kind of started from, uh, I wrote this piece like in when did I write it? 2018, I think. Uh, I got commissioned for Vice. Um, it was a piece about just how Chinese takeaways 
were disappearing in the UK. And it's more of a generational thing. So obviously, like my parents came to the UK in the 80s. Uh, Chinese takeaways have been going on since I don't know how long they've been going on. Like this, like it's through migration waves. So it's from mm-hmm. like the 60s and 70s and 80s, where um, a lot of new territories, people from Hong Kong, were able to come over to the UK because of the Sino handover. Mm-hmm. They were able to get British passports and resettle the UK. So a lot of them, you know, like my parents were uneducated. They didn't really go to school. My mum. My mum grew up in the Cultural Revolution. She dropped out of school and like prime. She was like primary school educated. My dad was like high school, like comprehensive level. So they didn't really like have an education. So there there weren't that many opportunities open to them. And the only one that was they were able to like uh, you know get a job in was cooking and working in hospitality. So when they came to the UK, they just like followed wherever work was around. So they worked in like loads of restaurants where there was uh, like living accommodation above the restaurants. Um, so they were like traveled all around from like London to Southampton to Bournemouth and uh, eventually settling in Wales. Like they saved up enough to buy their own place. And so I guess that's how they. Um, like started uh, I think like I never as a kid you never really questioned like where, where you come from or like how we came to be or how we ended up in Wales of all places and um, I think it's only until since we um, like sold the shop in 2018 hmm. um, you kind of really examine everything you know when my parents told that they were selling the shop um, I think you realize like all the good and bad memories yeah. and kind of reminisce about all the nostalgic times and it just made me really think and uh, really yearn for my past mm. thing like like something that was so central to our lives the the Chinese takeaway you know we would always put the takeaway before ourselves you know it was always uh, making sure that we had um, we were back in time for service making sure we had enough stock you know it was always like the shop before our own needs mm. and as that kind of shifted and just trying to find our footing in the world in a way where like okay well what next kind of yeah. feeling um, and so that's where I kind of got the idea it was for uh, it was from like that piece that I wrote for Vice, just how Chinese takeaways are disappearing, how mm. um, a lot of, you know, my parents' generation are selling Chinese takeaways because, you know, they're getting on a bit older. They're not as young as they were. And people's tastes have changed mm. from like when my parents first arrived to the UK, there really wasn't that much food offering in the UK. It was either, you know, an Indian takeaway or a Chinese takeaway or pizzas. Whereas now in the age of like Deliveroo and just eating Uber Eats, there's, you can get everything, you know, mm. you can get like uh, Tibetan like dumplings or Vietnamese pho or Korean like gimbap, like everything. And yeah. there's just so much competition now. Yeah. So I do find that Chinese takeaways are um, very, you know, stuck in their ways. They're still very cash only businesses. They don't have a, you know, online presence. So there are still a lot of those shops around so I kind of wanted to write a piece just kind of celebrate it in a way and just kind of remember it for its time like this is very much like what happened there are like thousands of takeaways they're still running um yeah I felt like that was a very long (laughs) winded. no but it does feel like a celebration and I love it because it also feels like a social history of a really specific 
kind of um, of takeaway and a kind of experience um, that that the whole community was part of. Obviously, a huge amount of the community used that takeaway. Um, the thing that I found so fascinating about it is that you know we so often read stories of um, of people growing up in cities. Um, having this diaspora experience and you so rarely read about the rural side of it and it was really interesting to me I hadn't realized and of course it makes perfect sense that you know why your your parents very deliberately chose to go somewhere with no other Chinese families there because they wanted to be the ones setting up the Chinese takeaway and that they didn't like like it was a kind of an unwritten rule that there wasn't competition. Mm. So you were the only Chinese family in town. And until you, I read that, I was like, of course, I mean, it makes, it makes <laughs> perfect sense. But of course that means that you as a family were much more isolated than, you know, your, your, you know, your parents' peers who decided to settle mm. in cities, for instance, where they had yep. community immediately available to them. And that experience is then very different because of it. Yeah, absolutely. I do feel like though, um, like my family, they were quite strategic in a way. It's like my dad's side of the family all moved to Wales. So we were close enough, but not, um, you know, be in direct competition with one another. So we did in a way had a bit of a community, even though it's like a very small community. Um, You know, I think my parents really wanted to, as like a young family, we didn't really have much help. Mm. It was just very much like my parents, they were the early chefs. And me and my brothers, when we were old enough to help out, and then we had a few people working on like the front of house on the counter and a few people on deliveries. Um, but it was very much like a family affair. And whenever we needed help, we would always like call on cousins or aunties and uncles who were nearby mm. that they were able to help. Um, and and I think that's why I really wanted kind of the to shine a light on. Like, I, I think I, I f- often forget how nice people in Wales mm. are. <laughs> like every time I go back to Wales, everyone always speaks to you, you know, yeah. it's like, oh, how's your day? Or like, oh, well, well what are you up to? Or like, how is your daughter? That kind of thing. It's a very, very friendly community. And I've probably lived in London for too long where no one speaks to you on the tube. No one really cares about you. And, um, and I I think I'm really like, I'm really grateful for being in a community like that. But also, like you say, growing up in a rural place where there's not that much happening, there's not that much uh, opportunities. It's a very deprived area because of the the Thatcher era, but because all the coal mines were closed, like behind our takeaway was a massive coke works and we would actually go and play in the coke works, which is a real vision. Um, But I feel like everyone who grew up in like those types of places where there's not much to do and uh, they kind of make something out of nothing. Mm. And that's exactly what we did. And I'm very grateful for being in that environment mm. I think like I didn't appreciate it at the time at the time you just wanted to get out you know this is like yeah nothing for me here but as you look back on it now as you're older in a way you have uh, I think I mentioned it in the book there's a saying there's a Welsh saying I probably said it wrong but it's called hyreth which is mm. um, a non like you can't really uh, it's not an English word for it, but it's basically, it just means that you have like a, a nostalgic, painful kind of yearning for Wales. Yeah, it's like a yearning, isn't it? Yeah. It is. And I think it's such a beautiful word. And that's how I always feel about Wales. That's how I feel about Hong Kong as well. It's like this yearning for a place that I grew up that it's like tinged with sadness, but nostalgia. Mm. But yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and in the book, food is definitely a language of love. And it's really interesting because, of course, you don't, you say that you don't have a completely shared language with, with your parents. You obviously can communicate, you speak 
Cantonese, but as you say, to a certain level, and your parents speak some English. But because of that, there's not a completely shared language. And that food almost acts as the gap where the language can't um, quite bridge that gap. Yeah, absolutely. Like in uh, Chinese culture, like food is such a huge part of our culture. Food plays, um, you know, food plays an important part in every, every step of your life from, you know, the moment you're born, there's, you know, there's like so many recipes for pregnant mothers who had just given birth, you know, there's a whole like one month confinement, they have to eat like pig trotters and ginger to replenish. Um, or when your birthday, you have like these like red eggs to celebrate like a full year, like which I think I actually mentioned in the book, yeah. like, it celebrates like one year older. Um, but it also represents like wholeness, like there's so much like meaning and, um, of a like yeah there's so much of a meaning and representation in food and when I was writing about food in uh the book there's just so many ways to describe food Mm. in the Chinese language which I find really beautiful there's so many there's so many textures there's so many flavors there's so many descriptive words just about food in itself there's like a million different ways to describe um and that just shows how big food is Mm. in Chinese culture and um like I'm very lucky I, I I didn't appreciate it at the time I'm very grateful that my mum did force me to go to Cantonese school every Sunday when I was growing up just so I could actually learn some Chinese um like I used to be a lot better because uh, you're living in Wales and living at home being surrounded by Chinese and always keeping it up as you do with a language you always mm. have to try and keep it up um, I do feel like my Cantonese has like dropped a little bit just because like I haven't really like, spoken uh, Chinese properly, like being surrounded by it. And I haven't been back to Hong Kong for so long because of the pandemic. Yeah, of course. Um, and yeah, I, I do find that we butt heads a lot with my parents and it's quite frustrating um, just because we don't really understand each other or there's like cultural differences. You know, my parents haven't grown up in Hong Kong and China. They don't really see other certain like Western values. We often don't see eye to eye and we often argue a lot because of that. And um, the thing that we always bonded over was food. And I think that's why it's like food is such a a love-hate relationship for me. It's like Mm -hmm. having grown up in a food environment and being surrounded by food. It's very much the thing that I resented. It's very much like I, I didn't. I didn't want anything to do with food. I yeah. wanted to forge my own path. And now having to be in a job within food journalism, <laughs> having to find my way back into it, it feels really surreal. Um, I think that's kind of where it comes from, really. It's like a love-hate relationship. I'm trying to figure it out yeah. still. Of course. And and especially because, you know, from just having read the book about, you know, you know, from such a young age, you were working every single evening in the takeaway. Mm-hmm. And so food represented, I guess, for your family, your entire livelihood, first of all. So obviously that's really positive, but also mm-hmm. um, it was your, it was the thing that restricted you from, from behaving in the way that other teenagers your age were behaving. So I can, yeah, I can totally see that it, that must be a bit of a lump. Yeah, exactly. It's like, obviously food is the very thing that, um, you know, food is the very thing that keeps us fed, but it's also the thing that brings us money. Mm. But it's also the thing that also like I resented because, you know, I would go to school smelling like deep fat, deep fat fryer chip oil or like chicken balls or like sweets. Mm. I was so like, I would stink. <laughs> and it's the very thing that I wanted to get rid of, but I just mm. couldn't in a way. 
And I was so pleased to hear that in Cantonese, have you eaten yet, is the way that you greet each other. Because I, I spent quite a lot of time living in Thailand and it's exactly the same in Thai. Mm. You ask, have you eaten yet, when just when you're saying hello to somebody. Um, but not even just that, you, you ask specifically, have you eaten rice yet, which is just mm. how you express it. But yeah, yeah, it was so lovely to hear. I think probably quite a lot of East, language, East um, Asian languages have that similar expression that there isn't really an equivalent necessarily in English. Maybe there are some other European languages that have it. I'm not sure. Mm. <laughs> But it's so embedded in the culture. But um, let's talk for a moment about your mum, Jin. What an unbelievably incredible woman she is. My goodness. Like she is absolutely the heart and soul of the family and the business and keeps everything chugging along. And obviously, you know, you she's she's not always easy on you, but she is your greatest defender in lots of ways. And then as you, as you get older, you become her defender as well. It's a really incredible um, and complex relationship. And obviously your mum, you know, escaped China and, and went to Hong Kong when she was very young. Mm. Um, there's, you know, must be a lot of trauma in her back, her background. And it is, she's really just such an incredible woman. I, I guess I wanted to ask, what was, what was the experience like of, of putting that down on paper, putting your mum down on paper? Yeah, I mean, I don't even know where to begin with her. <laughs> um, I think it's such a weird thing because um, it's such an exposing thing as well because these things are so personal to me. Mm. And these things I've never really actually questioned, uh, especially growing up, you know, you just assume these things, you know, your parents are here. They, you don't question how they got here. You don't question how they met. You don't question mm. these kinds of things. We're just in Wales in this moment of time in the shop and that's what really matters. So it wasn't actually until like after, I know it's bad, but I, and I know it's the same for a lot of East and Southeast Asian families who actually don't know their Asian parents' backgrounds. It's because we never had time to sit and ask. We never really talked about feelings. We never really talked about their upbringing. And it was only until like we sold the shop that I got the opportunity to actually sit down and interview them and actually be a bit more inquisitive, like, uh, and ask them about it. And to learn that, you know, my mum had all this trauma and growing up with the Cultural Revolution, like I knew she had a very troubled past, but not to this like extent. Mm. And um, I was just like, incredibly fascinated just interviewing her and talking to her and actually getting the opportunity to just sit down and learn more about her life. And she always really uh, instilled the value of food within us, um, you know, having her growing up in famine, not having enough to eat, like both my mum and dad, you know, my dad had a very scrappy childhood with like, uh, I think it was like nine siblings, like mm -hmm. an insane, like insanely big family and just fighting for food all the time. So both of them had a very tough childhood. And so now being in a country and being safe and being having enough uh, having enough food on the table is such a big thing for them and you know not, like they always uh almost like bully tactics <laughs> just to make sure that you know we eat we eat every grain of rice kind of thing and just not wasting food um and just like trying to capture my mum I don't even know if I've captured her well enough or like good enough because she is a force of nature I would probably mm -hmm. say um and yeah, she has her, you know, ups and downs. Like, obviously, I love her very much. And it's only until, like, the last, um, like, recent years that I've started to really, really appreciate her, you know, growing up as a bratty teenager, bratty coming-of-age child, like, teen <laughs> in Wales. All you want to do is push her away. All you want to do is find your own footing in the world. And, you know, that's, I think that's what I wanted to try and capture. It's, 
you know, I feel like it's every teenager's way is just trying to, you know, fight your own battles kind of thing. And yeah, I think that's what I tried to capture. My mum is like our weird dynamic, but also this like, extra layer of like cultural barriers against yeah. us as well. Um, but yeah, I, I hope I captured her in a right light. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> well, I completely loved her. So. <laughs> and it's really interesting, isn't it? Because she's not always easy. You can see it's, she was not always necessarily an easy mum to have mm. because um, there wasn't a lot of talk about feelings and things like that, which mm. you were yearning for. But um, at the same time, gosh, what an incredible woman. And really, when you needed it, she was really there for you and really yeah. defended you when you really needed it. Yeah, just a really yeah. incredible woman. Like, absolutely. I feel like um, a lot of Asian parents, they obviously don't say, I love you. They don't say, I'm proud of you. They show up in different ways. It's through food, obviously. I mean, my parents are catering for the book launch, like, out of like they, they're just, just like so ace. <laughs> like like no no questions asked um they were very much like oh yeah it's just uh when they offered they just said oh it's just another night of service which was very sweet um <laughs> and you know they show up in different ways uh like after a meal after a dinner they'll like you know cut fruit they'll like carefully peel the skin and cut all the core and everything and chop it up perfectly for you mm. or you know they'll no questions asked they'll just show up for you in different ways like if you have an event if you have a talk they'll be there for you mm. in different ways which is very sweet and I'm very grateful for that yeah well the, the, there was also you know throughout the book you recount quite a number of racist attacks but also more than that sort of lots of incidents of everyday racism that you experienced and you describe as, I think at one point, death by a thousand paper cuts um, and how difficult that was. And I think particularly probably for you as the only girl in the family, you have two older brothers, but also you were often front of house um, and the rest of the family were often in the back. Um, So you had to really deal with it. And obviously as a woman, and this was often coming from drunk men or older teenage boys, um, it just it feels sort of almost more important than ever to talk about these kind of things. You know, there's a rise of um, racism against East Asians and Southeast Asians. Mm-hmm. Um, shockingly, in the last couple of years, it's been a really horrendous rise in racism. Um, so these stories, probably now more than ever, it's just seriously important that we understand that this has been going on for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like, especially with the rise of like COVID related uh, racism, it's, it seems like a shock to a lot of people like, Oh my God, I can't believe this is happening, but you know, it's been going on for a long time. And I think it's in a lot of um, like, like I said, in the book, it's like a lot of Asian people's nature to stay quiet, to just get on with it. And it's just like, we never really seen racism in a way where it's like, Oh, this is actually racism before we even knew it was called racism. It was just more, the way that my parents and we dealt with it, it was very much like, oh, this is like everyday life. This is very much part of the job. This is just how it is. Mm. And the thing is, like, I don't blame uh, people in Wales or like the the customers that we dealt with. I don't really blame them for the racism. Like, I don't blame the way that they acted. Like, it's not like a tragic, like, oh, woe is me kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, absolutely it's not. It's just the, it's like, it's very just, education really I think I think it's just people who are uneducated they're not experienced in it they're uncomfortable with it it's like you know not really familiar with having a Chinese family in a very white insular community so you know when my family came in the 80s I think they were they received a lot more 
um, like harsher, uh, a lot more, you know, a lot more harder, like racism and a lot more attacks back when they first started. So I think as time got on, people kind of realized who we were and embraced us. They real, um, you know, I think the attacks happened less and less because mm. like a bit more familiar, they, they understood who we are. They ex- like, you know, accepted us in a way. So I just wanted to kind of like, acknowledge that these things happened, but I don't really blame them for not like, I don't really blame them for happen- like that happening. I think it's just like, you know, I'm a complete like misunderstanding and just not, being able to like understand each other yeah and there was one point which was really quite brilliant I really enjoyed reading about your dad takes a stand against some teenage boys scares the absolute crap out of them and um and although his mother this child's this teenager's mother was quite put out by the whole thing um the whole community kind of got behind you and and you you, you say that actually everybody kind of there was renewed respect for your family for standing (laughs) up for yourselves against what is basically like a real brat like some of the incidents <laughs> teenage boys being brats, but taking yeah. it taking it quite far and quite scary because yeah. you know they might be technically still children, but you know they're teenage boys who are quite big and you know yeah, so quite so quite physically threatening. Yeah, um, but probably coming from a place of of um, of youth and ignorance. Um, yeah, yeah, and ill education. Yeah, exactly. I just feel like it's it's a mixture of like the environment that we're in, a mixture of like just not being educated, and a mixture of just nothing to do. Like I think that's the thing yes. in Wales. It's like, and <laughs> I, I don't trouble. <laughs> no, and the thing is, like I really don't blame people in Wales. It's just because you know there's so many factors that come into play. Um, you know, being in a place like Wales where it's like very deprived, there's not much yeah. to do. It's a lot of um, like not a lot of education and. And I think it's just like that people, like I said, it's just people make something out of nothing. And, you know, I'm pretty sure I was one of those like annoying teenagers that caused trouble too. So like there's no shame in that. And um, uh, and I think that like, I, I don't think it happens in just like rural places like Wales. I think it happens everywhere. You know, it happens in London. It happens wherever you go. And that's the in a way like I still remember that moment like as it was yesterday I just remember being like terrified for the kid (laughs) (laughs) just cowering away in the corner and um I think it's just like my parents way of um you know I think again it's like a cultural thing where um it's okay to be um you know be a, a bit aggressive not be verbal and that's just the way that we were kind of brought up that it's okay to you know hit your child or you know use violence in that sense Uh, obviously violence is not okay I don't condone it (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I just yeah I just remember it is just like another cultural barrier you know my parents grew up this is how the this is how we were kind of brought up and it's a very different way in the western world and the kind of standoff between that teenage boy's mother and my parents just this whole like miscommunication where my parents are very much like no we're right like (laughs) but we're not standing down kind of thing yeah and then your brother just (laughs) covering up going yes yes they said they're sorry yeah that's it's uh, yeah no it's completely and also quite frankly I was sort of on I have to say I was a bit on your dad's side about that one and it clearly did work because I don't think they had any trouble from that boy again did they (laughs) they scared him away um so let's talk for a second about the structure of the book because although it's it's pretty much chronological in the sense that you sort of 
mostly focus on sort of from around age 12 through to yeah. when your parents make the decision to sell the shop and close it down. Um, but you don't, you don't, it's not exactly chronicle. Your each chapter is kind of, is really focused on a different ritual or incident or um, aspect of, of growing up in a takeaway, which I really loved. I mean, one of my favorites was the Sunday chapter. I just adored that so much about your family's ritual on a Sunday. And I wanted to talk to you about that structure and whether that was sort of, it started off that way or did it evolve as, as you started writing? How did that come about? Yeah, um, it definitely evolved as I was writing. I actually wrote the ending first. So I wrote the scene where we're standing outside the shop and we're looking at it because I think that was the most freshest in my mind. Um, you know, I started kind of writing it in twenty end of 2019, start of 2020. So that was still quite fresh in my mind with the shop closing. And um, I kind of evolved from there. I was like, I knew I wanted to kind of include recipes. Mm. Um, so I kind of, that was a great kind of concrete pillar to kind of work around to have those recipes. And then I can kind of tie the recipes within the story in itself to kind of go from there. It was almost like such a, a higgledy-piggledy, like back to front format chronologically, I think. And um, And I think the age thing, kind of came afterwards like coming up as like a growing of coming of uh was it coming of age like growing mm. up with with the shop I just kind of worked my way backwards from there and um and I just kind of picked because obviously as a memoir I, I tried to find the best like memories I guess mm. obviously there were so many memories I guess it's like where do I start where do I what what to focus on what do I not focus on um so I just had this it looked a bit murder you know like <laughs> a bit like my walls looked a bit mental at one point you know when you have the um like crime scene where you try yeah. to the strings <laughs> and you're trying to work out who is what so I had a wall of just a load of uh, post-it notes and just try to figure out and just some of the characters so I had like one wall for like the characters of who I wanted to talk about I had one wall for all the recipes uh one wall for all the incidents and stories that I wanted to tell. And that's how I kind of got the, you know, the main points in the book, or like who should I write about, who should I focus on? And then once I've kind of got those in place, the other things just kind of clicked in place. Obviously yeah. I changed a lot as as I was writing and a lot of things like chopped and changed, a lot of recipes like didn't make the cut. A lot of characters I felt like were too similar to other characters or other incidents that just didn't really add anything. So yeah, that's how I kind of went on from there. It was just a very chaotic process, I feel. Well, I feel like this is so important for the listeners to hear because I think it, it's so easy for us when we see a finished book to imagine that it was sort of always meant to be that way. But it is a messy process, often, yeah. isn't it? especially with memoir, because there's so many options of different ways you go. And I think it's so, it will be reassuring for people to hear that it felt messy at the time, because it certainly doesn't fe- read messy now. But the, 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 each chapter has a recipe attached to it with some sort of narrative that links the recipe to what's happening. Um, and it's it's a book I'm going to say that made me incredibly hungry the whole time when I was reading it and desperate to eat Chinese food. And I'm definitely going to try some of the recipes. I can't wait to try them. Um, but so um, yeah, I was wondering if you in some of those chapters where you're focusing on kind of particular sort of incidents, in a way, were you able to sort of slightly merge a couple of different times together in order to be able to tell the story that you wanted to tell and that to me sort of felt like it was just a really effective way of of doing a memoir 
Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, I just, I think um, one of the things that I really struggled with was just trying to be really descriptive in the writing. And uh, probably a lot of, um, like, I had a lot of, like, help from my book editor, my agent, who were an incredible team. Um, and it was just really nice to work on a team that actually just gets it. Like, Rue Merritt, who's my book editor, she's mixed race, she's half Chinese, half white. And Nikki Chang, who is my agent as well, so she's for Chinese as well. Like, it just, it mm. feels so, it really helps to have just um, a team who actually just get it, who don't, have, yeah. who don't have to really explain anything. And the best advice they gave me was, uh, obviously, like, um show don't tell wait is that the right yeah show don't tell so I was like you know write um just don't tell us what you're writing about it just show us like how it's done mm. and also if you're stuck on writing write about the weather and write about the seasons and write about the events that happen so that's what I was kind of able to kind of tie into uh with my writing and just try to tie in with the memoirs as well as like the time of the time of day or the seasons or if, whether they're like really big events that were happening so obviously like Wales is a very very uh rugby culture mm. heavy type of place you know rugby is in our blood you know we we love the Six Nations we love rugby games so like it was just so easy to kind of tie in like big seismic events like the Six Nations of rugby mm. and how that kind of affects businesses as well obviously being um you know, big sporting events, a lot of drunken customers would come through the door after watching rugby all day and being drunk all day. And it was just quite easy to tie in, like, with those events that happened mm. during, like, those times of periods or, you know, seasonality things where, like, I think in the book I talk about Halloween, mm. how um, I actually hate Halloween because uh, it was just a nightmare for businesses because there were loads of youths who would just, like, throw eggs and teepee houses. And um, it was just quite nice to be able to use those points like those seasonal events to tie in with the writing mm. of the book as well and that really actually get, kind of gave it a lot more um of a story and more of a background and um more of like uh just to be able to like describe things and try to immerse the reader a little bit more as well yeah and I loved the chapter in Hong Kong as well and where there is it does feature a lot of weather and it's so lovely because it's such a contrast Wales oh yeah it yeah. couldn't be more different it's so <laughs> urban it's so incredibly urban it's so incredibly humid you uh, you experience it in the in the chapter that you describe um because you, you spent most of your summers there didn't you but in yeah. this particular chapter you describe you know a typhoon that you all experienced and things like that and it's just um, and it was just such a gorgeous kind of contrast to all of the, all everything that was happening in Wales as well. Yeah, I mean, it feels like Hong Kong weather right now. <laughs> it really like- does. I know. It's really strange because obviously I'm from Melbourne. It's very so it strange. does feel weird. I keep mm. thinking I'm in Melbourne. Yeah. It's, it's, do you, are you getting that? Were you just very, getting here in London? <laughs> it's very strange right now. Um, strange. But I'm very glad. I was, I'm in an RN weather to include a chapter in Hong Kong, but I'm really glad I did because mm. um, it kind of breaks up from being in Wales and being in the takeaway because Hong Kong is such a central place to our lives as well. Having um, parents who grew up in Hong Kong and spend a lot of their time in Hong Kong and um, having this like umbilical cord kind of go yeah. back and forth to uh, Hong Kong as but well. But also like one thing that I loved as a reader was seeing your dad in a different location. You know, your dad is such a particular character as you describe in the takeaway. He's so First of all, that your parents are both very overworked, but also your dad is incredibly stressed all the time in Wales. And to to kind of put him 
back in his childhood place and and you say how he relaxes and how he becomes somebody else just to be able to get a glimpse of that man I think is just so incredible as a reader as well and there is this sense of um of getting just to understand that 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 kind of duality that you were dealing with throughout your life as well of this what you know three or four weeks of the year where you were you were over here and your family was this way and the rest of the year you were in Wales and experiencing life that way yeah absolutely like I think because I experience obviously I have a very complex relationship with my dad um and obviously I experience uh like a lot of you know being in that hostile environment in the kitchen and shouting all the time and I kind of obviously resent my dad a lot for that but obviously being out of Hong Kong and just seeing this different side of him that I don't often see mm-hmm. is so nice and just a reminder that you know he is a human being at the end of the day as well like he's not just some horrible person (laughs) that I resent but he's still my dad at the end of the day and I you know I still love him and um you know he is a great guy and he both of them sacrifice so much for Mm. us to be able to read and speak English to be able to write a book you know it's um they sacrificed so much for us to for us to be able to have have the life that we do now so I I very much like appreciate that yeah um, yeah, like I'm really glad that I got, I was able to write um, like a different side to my dad that I don't mm. often get to see or hear. And that was such a um, a memory that I cherish a lot, you know, being able, being jet lagged and waking up really early and just going down to the harbour and having a little fish with my dad and just, you know, we don't really talk and just being, just appreciating each other's mm. company in silence uh, in this like really serene environment in Hong Kong by the harbour, by the seaside, uh, by the seafront and mm. trying to catch fish and just eat together. Yeah. Uh, whereas it's like, I feel like I really wanted to try to capture like the, how actions do more than words, like say more than words sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's just talk about your writing career for a moment as well. That um, You did a master's in journalism before you moved to London and then you went full-time into journalism. So was the was food writing very deliberate or did it just find you could it just not leave you alone no I feel like it could leave me alone I feel like that's (laughs) I feel like that's the way with most um food writers that I know they fall into it by accident um I actually started out wanting to do very more like news journalism and um started out doing like fashion and music so I actually I interned everywhere and everywhere that would have me I worked at like newsrooms I worked at newspapers and magazines um and then actually couldn't get a job in uh journalism I actually started out freelancing uh because I couldn't get a staff job because it was highly highly competitive I started out working in um content marketing and ad ad agencies um and I ended up uh, working at a content agency that produced uh, Tesco magazine mm-hmm. um, and that's when I kind of fell into food really I was uh, working on like food shoots I was food st- helping food styling assisting on shoots but then writing recipes and editing them and then working mm. with like nutritionists as well um, and then my editor from Tesco magazine moved on to JB Oliver magazine which is now defunct um, and I worked on the website and the magazine so that's how I kind of got in from there and actually realized like actually maybe maybe food is my calling like I can't <laughs> ever escape it like yeah why, why do I love it set in stone <laughs> and um yeah it was from there I just started doing a lot of freelance writing alongside 
um, freelancing for content agencies and ad agencies, like a lot more commercial writing. Mm. And uh, I started out writing a lot for Vice, for like Munchies, which is their food plat. Uh, I think it's now all merged into Vice now, but it used to be called Munchies. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I was like writing all these amazing uh, like I really flexed my like feature writing just interviewing chefs interviewing producers like I did everything from uh interviewed like Halamon which is like this um like salt producer in Anglesey and they got like this uh they were incredible like um sea salt production company in like Anglesey where they you know get water from the Menai Strait and make sea salt themselves like it's just uh, I, I love being able to learn about people's stories and tell their stories and um, I, I'm just so glad to be a part of that and the best part about being a journalist is um, it's almost like you're in university again um, it's like a never-ending learning but mm. you learn from all the experts you ask them really dumb questions all the time you ask them like oh how do you do this or tell me more about your job and um you know, as a as a journalist, I get to be very curious. I get to write, ask people about the jobs and write it for other people to learn as mm. well. Like I think that's that's why I wanted to go into journalism. It's the curiosity and learning, never ending quest of learning, in a way. Um, and yeah, I guess that's how I kind of got into food journalism is through uh, like freelance writing, and then just kind of went from there. I guess. Yeah, and so um, so you've just left time out you were there you were full-time there for a little while doing food and drinks um writing there um and so what's what's next for you uh so I, I just start um, I'm about to start uh next week uh called rec is an app called recce so it's more I would say more b2b so it's more writing for like chefs and people in hospitalities and distributors and producers um it's an app for chefs where they can order everything for like just dis- uh, suppliers and farmers and they could just order stuff that they need basically mm-hmm. and um, they don't really have an editorial like they're quite new in terms of like being a startup so I'm quite excited obviously there's you know pros and cons of a startup life mm-hmm. but um, I'm excited to kind of build something from like from a beginning essentially yeah. and try to really like cement themselves as a name and a brand and just doing what I love doing is just telling people stories and then being able to ask people stupid questions and then relaying it back to people (laughs) like that's what I love and I'm very grateful that I get to do that I still pinch myself that I'm actually able to do this as a job which I still think is mad um but I'm very grateful to be able to do what I do Uh, well, congratulations on the book. It is just wonderful. And like I said, just such an incredible, not just a personal account, but just such an incredible kind of way of of um, kind of, I don't know, um, capturing a, a place and a time and a very specific way of life that, you know, as you're saying, is, is starting to disappear. And it's just, you know, it was such a, such a joy to read. Um, so thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you, Patty. Um, yeah, it feels really surreal. Like, I can't really believe that something I've been working on for so long is finally coming to light. I'm kind of sick of it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's with most authors, you know, they, they work on something for so long and by the time it's out, they're like, I can't 
read or talk about my writing anymore. I just want to hide in a little cave. I feel like that means you've done a really good job on where you are so far. I feel like that's just part and parcel. You have to be sick of your book by the time it comes out. That is (laughs) essential, unfortunately. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you, Penny. Thank you for inviting me. And um, yeah, thank you. Um, I guess, yeah, takeaway is out tomorrow in all good bookshops, I think. Um, And I'll pop the the links in the show. Yeah. Thank you so much. (laughs) You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. You can buy all the books recommended on the podcast at uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash not too busy to write, where a portion of each sale goes to support independent bookshops around the country. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe or follow and please leave a review. It really helps others to find the podcast.